Today we're taking a look at the second letter of the seven letters to the churches. The church at Ephesus was the first letter and they were the loveless church. And we talked about making sure we do what we do for God out of love and not out of duty. The second is Smyrna. And Smyrna is the persecuted church and probably better described not as the persecuted church, but as the suffering church. Because everything Jesus talks about here, it's connected to persecution, but it's not all persecution. And we want to talk a little bit today about suffering. That the Bible teaches us that it is a privilege to suffer for Christ, which is kind of a crazy statement when you think about the way the world is. When you think that there are people who tell you that if you're suffering, you're in sin, you haven't got things right with God, you don't have enough faith. The Bible teaches that it's a privilege for us to suffer for him because God has a purpose and a plan in suffering. God has something he wants to do in each one of us. That's why we go through suffering and all of us go through it just at different levels and at different times, but we all go through it and God has a purpose and a plan for that suffering. That's what the world doesn't understand when they ask the question, if God is good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And why is there this five-year-old that got cancer and is suffering now? And they use that emotion. And even when you respond, they can't get past the emotional. Yes, it's horrible that there's so much suffering in the world and that children suffer. Yes, it is awful. But God has created us in the midst of this world that we would respond and be compassionate and be kind. And God has his purpose in that tribulation. John 16, tells us that we will have tribulation, even though there are those out there who say otherwise. It says, these things I have spoken to you, it's Jesus talking, that you may have peace. This is a crazy thing. And it's, it's again, that thing that God does where one thing's happening, but something else is happening. I'm telling you this so you can have peace, he says. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We're supposed to have peace because we're going to have tribulation, but he's overcome the world. That means that no matter what's happening to you, you trust God. You know that even in the midst of it, you're being shaken, you're being affirmed, you're being tested by God. And so you say, I trust him. I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why it's going on. I wouldn't choose this but I trust him. In 1 Peter 5, 10, we're told that our suffering will only be for a while. I thought we should throw that in here in the beginning of our study about suffering. It says, but may the God of grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, and look at what he wants to do through the suffering. Perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. God wants to do those four things in your life, allowing suffering to be able to do those things. And we're told that what is to come cannot be compared to the suffering we're facing now. That one day we will be in glory and look back and go, it, 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 is, it wasn't even enough for what we've received now. In Romans eight eighteen, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul said, 
I want to complete the suffering. I want to complete the work of Christ in my sufferings. I, I don't understand that completely except to say that he realized that when I suffer, the world looks at me and it gives me a platform to be able to share so that the work of Christ can be completed. Not the work on the cross, the work of Christ in saving the world because we are the light of the world. He also said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. And amen. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. But then he said, and in the fellowship of his suffering. So God has a purpose. God has a plan in suffering. And this church, Smyrna, that we're going to look at today is just a little bit up the coast from Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city, but I don't know, it's some mile away from the port inland maybe a little bit more than that, a couple of miles inland from the port. So they had a lot of land to go. Smyrna has a port city as well. It's the closest one to Athens. And just as Ephesus was a tremendous city, so Smyrna was a tremendous city in the first century when this letter was written to them. And uh, it says in Revelation 2, 8 through 11, what I want to do here is I want to read, make a few comments, kind of get a couple of things out of the way. And then I want to break down these passages more. So Revelation 2, 8 says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear the things which are, you are about to suffer. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. You might say, that's a hard ask. It's not that we can't fear the pain or the experience of suffering. We can have apprehension about it. We can fear it. But we don't fear the end result of our suffering because God's doing something good out of it. He says, do not fear the things that you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So God's testing them. Again, he's working out something inside of you. He has a purpose. He's not just allowing Satan to throw them into prison for no reason, but he wants to test them like Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the spirit of God to be tempted. Like Peter was asked, had, uh, Satan had asked Jesus for Peter that he might sift him like wheat and Jesus allowed that to happen because Peter needed that sifting to do something inside of him it says and you will have tribulation 10 days be faithful until death there's a certain point in persecution in life when you realize this is the end I have been I'll call it fortunate to have been around people at the end of their lives and to see the transformation from living for what God has for them to do to putting their eyes on heaven and now helping people why they make that transition into heaven without fearing death, not being afraid of it. Now, I'm afraid of the pain of death. I don't want to, I don't want to suffer greatly. I want it to be quick. I've said before, the last thing I want to see before I die is GMC. And then dark, and then Jesus's face. That's what I want. But I'm not afraid of death. If the Lord were to take me today, and I, I hope you have that same confidence in him, that you don't fear death.
be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, let's begin to break this down. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, the angel here would be a representative of the church, either an angel or the pastor. These things says the first and the last. He wants to let him know I'm the beginning and I'm the end. And I'm telling you these things. The one who was dead and who came to life. So he reminds them of his death and his resurrection. I'm the one who died. I suffered and I was risen to life. And that he's talking to them about suffering. And he, in the beginning, in his description, every letter, all seven of them, start out with a description of Jesus. And they're all connected to the letter that's written. And so him saying, I am the one who was dead and am alive, he's speaking to some who are going to die and be alive. On top of that, the city of Smyrna was an old city, thousands of years before Christ. And then in 700 BC, before Christ, the city of Smyrna was destroyed and was left in ruins and a small community that was there. When Alexander the Great was taking over the world, Alexander the Great came through Smyrna, saw it devastated, remembered the accounts of the great city that it was and determined, in fact, said he had a dream that he was supposed to rebuild Smyrna. And he rebuilt it into a grand port city with a giant hillside that was covered in pagan temples, in Greek and Roman God temples. And the city of Smyrna was given the privilege of being the warden of emperor worship, meaning it was the seat of emperor worship. And in 26 AD, they built a temple to Tiberius. Tiberius was the second emperor, third emperor. I forget now. He was an early emperor. I should have just said that from the beginning. And he was the emperor that was there when Jesus was alive. You had Augustus when Jesus was born, and then you had Tiberius. And Tiberius was a significant person, and they built a temple to him for worship to Tiberius. When this letter is written, Diomitian is the emperor and Diomitian sent out a command throughout all of the land that everyone had to pay tribute to Caesar or would pay the price. There would be a penalty to not paying tribute to him as God and to Caesar. And so you have Smyrna as the warden, which just means that they were overseeing emperor worship in that region. And they had the temple there to Tiberius. No wonder the church in Smyrna is so persecuted more than any of the other churches. And they're persecuted. We saw already that Ephesus had some persecution take place. We're going to see that, that um, the church of Philadelphia has some persecution. So it's happening. John is on Patmos because he's been arrested by Diomitian for not giving allegiance to Caesar. John was a pastor in Ephesus. And so there's persecution going on all over the place, but this city particularly. Now, the name Smyrna is the same as myrrh. When Jesus was born, the, a couple years later, the wise men brought Jesus frank, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is a sap that comes out of a, a bush, really, and then is collected and dried out and then crushed and brings out a very pleasing fragrance. 
and it was very popular. And because Smyrna was a port city, it is said that they would get myrrh from the trade route that came up from Africa. Some say that there were that plants would grow in the tr more tropical region of Smyrna. I, I couldn't find anything as to whether or not that is true, but they at least were on the trade route and they were the closest port to, to Athens. And myrrh was very popular, made very expensive perfumes. Myrrh was also talked about in the Old Testament as being mixed into the anointing oil. So the anointing oil in the temple had myrrh in it. And Jesus is the anointed one so there's a connection between myrrh, the anointing oil, Jesus receiving myrrh as a child. And when Jesus died, they wrapped his body and they tucked in spices and myrrh, frankincense and myrrh into his body. Could the myrrh that the wise men brought to Jesus be from Smyrna? Could the myrrh they tucked into the body of Jesus be from Smyrna? Perhaps, maybe not, but it's interesting to think about to think about that. So in order to get the fragrance out of this sap that had been dried, you had to crush it. And that's what myrrh means to be crushed. And so here's this church in Smyrna and they're going to suffer. They're going to be crushed. But from the crushing is going to come a fragrance, not a foul smell, but a, a beautiful smell like what would come from the myrrh. Now also Smyrna was the name of a Greek, uh, of it, the name in Greek mythology of the mother of Adonis. And Smyrna's name was also myrrh. So this city would be very proud of the fact that they have a name that is connected to the mother of Adonis as their city. So there's more to it than just the trade of myrrh. But and in, in Greek mythology, and I didn't know this one, uh, she, uh, she has intercourse with her father, incest, gets pregnant, flees, finds herself, I think it's in, I don't know where it's at exactly, but is rescued by another mythological god, one of the gods, and he turns her into a myrrh tree. And where they get myrrh from. And that's our myrrh bush. That's where you get the name myrrh or Smyrna. That's how she gets her name. And then in Greek mythology, one of the bush that brings myrrh gave birth to Adonis. And that's where they got Adonis from. Okay, so that's your Greek mythology lesson for today. And for those of you who really know Greek mythology, you're probably doing this right now. He got that so wrong. But I got the basics right. All right. That's what I meant. I got the basics right, even though I might have gotten other stuff wrong. I just wanted you to know that because I think that it would bring a point for these for this Greek and Roman culture to have this Greek mythology connected to their name would be very would be very very powerful to them. People take pride in where they live. And in this Greek culture, these Greeks who had grown up with Greek mythology would have taken pride in that. Uh, and um, so Myrrh has this connection to Jesus. Now, with that in mind, um, with that in mind, let's begin in verse in verse, uh, let's continue in verse nine. Uh, he says, I know your works. Jesus says, I know your works. Jesus knows firsthand. He's walking in the presence of the candlesticks. The candlesticks are the church, which are represented as light. And we are the light of the world. And Jesus is in the presence of the church. He's here with us now. 
And he could say to us as a church, I know your works because he knows them firsthand. He could also look at your heart because the Lord looks at the heart. We look on the outward and God knows your works. He knows what you've done. He knows your heart. He, he knows your motives. He knows everything about you. He's here. He's present. And he says tribulation. Now, Jesus had said in, I think it's John 16, which we read earlier, in this world, you will have tribulation. So the word tribulation comes from a, a tortured device, kind of like excruciation comes from the cross. When you are in excruciating pain, you're saying, I have the pain of the cross. So tribulation they would take, and there's a couple of different ways that I read that this torture would take place. Uh, I think most often they would bound the individual. They would lay a giant board on top of them. And then they would add heavy rocks to that board. And the weight would press down on you. Sometimes they were looking for confession. Sometimes it was a way for them just to be put to death. And they would continue to add rocks until the weight took the life from you till it crushed you. So the word tribulation literally means to be afflicted, to be pressed, to be crushed. Myrrh was to be crushed. And so there's a connection all the way through it. In fact, you find these kind of connections not only in the letters to the churches, but throughout the book of Revelation. It's very deep and it's very profound. I know your crushing. I know your affliction. I know the pressure. I know your tribulation that comes from this, this form of torture. Now, there are three things that he says that he knows about what they are going through. The first thing he says is, and poverty, but you are rich. He says poverty, and there's two different words in the Greek for poverty. One that means not having much. And the other one that means abject poverty, You've, you have nothing. This is the word for abject poverty. Why, why would they be in abject poverty? Well, in the ancient world, all of these cities, but in the ancient world, there were, there were guilds, kind of like unions today, but they were guilds, trade guilds. And you had to be a part of them to work in that trade. So if you were selling myrrh, or transporting myrrh, or collecting myrrh, whatever end you were on, you had to be a part of that trade guild. And they were full of paganism. And they were full of vile acts that they did to their false gods. And so Christians, once they committed their lives to Christ, and we're not gonna live that way anymore, would not be a part of the trade guild. And also would not give their allegiance to Caesar, as was this city was tasked with being the one that would do that entire region so that they lost their jobs, literally could not work. On top of that, they had some difficulty with the synagogue in the area. And many early Christians were Jewish because Jesus fulfilled Judaism, fulfilled the Old Testament law. So many of the first Christians were Jewish and then it spilled over to the Gentiles. Even when Paul would go to a city, he would first go to the synagogue and then he would go to the Gentiles and then he would bring them together. And so if you were a Jew that left the synagogue, now you couldn't have a job within anywhere within the Jews that worked in that city. 
you couldn't have a job if you were part of the trade guild. So these people were sent into abject poverty. They had nothing. And they must have felt that pressure, that affliction in that tribulation of poverty. But Jesus says something interesting to them. He says, but you're rich. This is the teaching of scripture. Jesus said he was approached. I I love I love this particular uh, little account with Jesus. It's in Luke 12, 13 through 15. Uh, It says, then one of the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Have you guys ever been in a family dispute over somebody's goods? It doesn't happen all the time, right? If your family had someone pass away and there wasn't a fight over their stuff with the brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles, consider yourself to be blessed. Because people over inheritance stuff will just absolutely do the worst things. So this guy, I heard one guy say, had a shot to talk to Jesus. He's got a shot to say to Jesus anything he wants to say to the Messiah, the miracle worker. Lord, make my brother divide his inheritance with me. That's what he goes to. But he said to him, man, sounds like he's from the 70s, man, who made you a judge or an arbiter? Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Jesus is like, I didn't come to judge between you guys and inheritances. And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. That's the problem within families. Instead of being giving and loving, they become covetous and they want this. They'll fight over the strangest things. And then he says, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of things he possesses. You may not be in abject poverty, but you could have nothing. You may be rich and yet be poor, and you may be here and be poor, and you are rich. Why? Because you have it all. You have everything. You are a co-inheritor with Jesus, the Bible tells us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, you have everything. They had all kinds of problems. They were suing one another in court, fighting over things. And Paul's like, you guys have it all. Cut it out. What you have here is not a reflection of what you have. Your bank account, your 403B, your 401K, your 9647Z doesn't reflect what you really possess as a Christian. You possess so much more than that. You have it all. And so he says to these people that are living in this city that have given their lives to Christ and it has brought them tribulation. If they don't live for him, they wouldn't have that tribulation, but they continue to live for him and and have that tribulation in their lives. And so they have this poverty. Now, Christianity was not a sanctioned religion by the Romans. They They were persecuted and killed and tormented. They could not practice what they did. And so they went underground in the years after Christ. In the, in the second century, which would be the 100s to the 200s, they began to meet in the catacombs. They began to, to use the fish as a signal to be able to say to someone, I'm a Christian, are you a Christian? Because there was persecution taking place. That, w- that was happening there. Judaism was a sanctioned religion, which meant that Rome said, you guys can practice Judaism and we're going to leave you alone as long as you don't. So they didn't have to give tribute. As far as I know, I couldn't find really anything about it, but they were a sanctioned religion. Maybe they did have to give tribute, but it doesn't seem like it as a sanctioned religion. Christianity wasn't. 
So the second thing that he says is that, oh, well, let me just, I want to say this too before we move on. Christians are impoverished around the world today because they are Christians. In China, North Korea, in Russia still, in the past it's been worse in Russia for Christians, other communist nations, Islamic nations, and in nations like India. India is one of the top nations for persecution against Christians. And there are Christians in India who cannot get jobs because they are Christians. All they have to do is become some other religion and they'll be able to get jobs. So it is happening in the world today. Now, the second thing that he says that in the second tribulation is from the blasphemy of those who are Jews and are not. It says, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, I need to say this, and it's kind of sad that I need to say this. This is, he's talking about the local synagogue in Smyrna that these Jewish people there were attacking and slandering Christians. He's not calling every Jew in the world of the synagogue of Satan. There is growing anti-Semitism in our world today. The Bible says that the whole world, that Jerusalem is going to be a, a, a heavy um, a ball, rock around the neck. I can't forget the word the scriptures use, but it's going to make Jerusalem heavy around the neck of the world. And, and people are hating Jewish people today. It's growing. And I hear people say, well, the Jews are of the synagogue of Satan. That is taking this massively out of context. That, that, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying these particular Jews in this synagogue, he will make mention of it again in Philippi. To, to, in, uh, to the city of Philadelphia. He'll make mention of it again. So in Philadelphia as well. But they were, they were slandering the Jews. The kind of slander that they would use would be, there was slander that Christians, this happened in Rome as well, the city of Rome. The kind of slander they would hear was that they were cannibalism, cannibalists because of communion, that they were cannibals. I don't know what a cannibalist is, but they were cannibals. And they drank blood, which to a Jew was breaking the law. If you ate an animal, you had to drain the blood from the animal and you could not eat an animal with the blood in it. And so taking communion, when we say, when Jesus said, this is my blood and this is my body, then that would be offensive to, to in fact, when Jesus was out and, and things were popular and there were large crowds, Jesus said, you must eat of my body and drink of my blood. And the crowds left. They said, this is a hard saying. And they left. And he turns to his disciples, the 12 who are left. He says, you guys going to leave as well? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Why did they leave? Because he was asking them to do something that wasn't kosher. It would have been against what was, should have been said. So they claimed that they were immoral in their love feasts. They had love feasts in their day. And it was claimed that at the love feast, they were doing all kinds of immoral things. They were slandered that they were rejecting their family because they called other Christians brothers and sisters. Where we know that the Bible taught the opposite in the first century, that we have a responsibility to our families. But they taught that the church said that there was no responsibility to it. And so all of these things, these slanderous things that were said caused people to look at these impoverished Christians in even a worse state. And slander can be such a horrible thing. Have you ever been slandered? You ever had somebody say something about you that wasn't true? 
you know how I respond to slander? I get indignant. I get like, what, what? Don't they even know? What? I can't believe they said that about me. It's just not true. It's just not, you know? And we feel like that when someone says something about us that's not true. In Revelation 3, 9, well, let's go to this one. Um, in 1 Peter 3, 16 and 17, it says this about how to handle slander. Having a good conscience. Don't be out there doing things you shouldn't do. Have a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. So if you're going to suffer the slander, then don't do evil and then receive the slander. Do what's good. In Matthew 11, excuse me, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the Jews in the city of the, of the, in the synagogue of the city in Smyrna attacked the, uh, the church. And since Satan is the one who attacks the church, then he calls them the synagogue of Satan because they were doing the work of Satan in slandering. And so that's why they're called that. So they're, they were feeling the crushing weight of being slandered, of having been said about them what was not true. And finally, in verse 10, he says, do not fear those things which are, you are about to suffer. So you're going to suffer things, don't fear it. I, I was thinking about this particular group and how it could have been a movie so easily. If we could see a Christian movie made about the, the, the city of Smyrna and what these believers went through, it would be an incredibly powerful movie. They're about to suffer. He says, don't be afraid of it. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This would not be a prison like we think of a prison today. It would have been a hole in the ground. It would be rat infested. There would be nothing sterile or clean in, in any way. Not that any prison is sterile anyway, but I'm just trying not to get gross. But you can imagine Roman prisons were brutal places and some of them were going to be thrown in prison. Notice not all of them, not a lot of them, but some of them. He's letting them know that you may be tested and he's going to allow that to happen so that they will be tested. They as a group of people will be tested to trust God. And you will have tribulation. There's going to be this crushing. Somebody's got to a reminder. What do you got to do? You, you have this, this crushing for 10 days. So what does this 10 days mean? It could be a euphemism for just a little time. You're going to have this crushing for 10 days. It could be um, a type of the 10 emperors that persecuted the church after this. So there have been people that have taken 10 different emperors throughout the first 300 years and seen them as a fulfillment of these 10 days. Maybe. There's no way for us to know that for sure. There's certain things that you just got to go, I don't know exactly what it means. I think 10 days just means it's limited. And, and maybe there's something significant about it. Maybe someday we'll get a clue or, or I'll get a clue. Maybe you already do. I'll get a clue. But it says you, you will be tested and have this tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. So the third tribulation, that, the third tribulation that they were going to have is persecution. 
They were going to be thrown into prison. They were going to be killed. So 2 Timothy 3, 11 and 12 says, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Our persecution is going to be different than what theirs was. And, but who knows? We are grow, the world is growing in hatred towards us as Christians, especially those of us that teach having a relationship with Christ, that being saved by knowing him. The world is hating us more and more, and they will continue to do that. Jesus said in Matthew 5:10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says that all who know, all who live godly will suffer persecution. That means we're all going to suffer persecution to some degree. I don't know what that is. Now, let me end with this. According to Open Doors International, which is a ministry that ministers to the persecuted church around the world. According to them, there are 360 million Christians in the world living, suffering high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. 360 million people in this world, Christians in this world, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, are suffering high levels of persecution. This is not moderate levels. This is not some persecution. This is high level. The top 10 nations, well, I'm going to say the top nations because I'm going to give you nine. I'll round up. The top nations where persecution takes place is Afghanistan. This is as of today. Afghanistan, if you're a Christian, is the number one place you are persecuted. North Korea, number two, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, and India, which I mentioned before, are places that are persecuting. They're the top nine places that are persecuting Christians today. So this topic of persecution, think about how much different the book of Smyrna is taught and read in India and Pakistan and Yemen among believers. Think about how differently they would read this and how poorly the prosperity movement of, you know, if you're, if you're persecuted, if you're, if you're suffering, you don't have enough faith, how poorly that would go over. So, as I do often, three things in closing. Number one, endure hardship. Endure it. Kind of knuckle down and, and go through it. Second Timothy th uh, 2, 3 and 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So we endure hardship, letting God do his work in us, letting us be pressed, letting us be afflicted, letting us face the tribulation so we can be tested and have God do what he wants to do in us. Our faith, when tested, is much more precious than gold, the Bible says. Number two, have a good conscience. Get the things out of your life that you know you got to get out. Let God know, I'm struggling. I need to, to do this. We're, you're struggling with it anyway. You might as well struggle to get it out of your life. Don't settle in to some sin and keep it there. Have a good conscience. So if they slander you, it's a complete and total lie. You're suffering for righteousness sake. And number three, rejoice when you're persecuted. When you get looked over for that promotion because you're a Christian, when your boss harasses you because you're a Christian, 
when family talks behind your back and tears you down because you're a Christian? When they're passive aggressive, which is, I don't know if it's the worst. To me, it's the worst. I hate passive aggressive. But you're at that family gathering and they say something about you to everybody and you know it's about you. Rejoice. When you're in school, college, and the professor starts to pick on Christians and you speak up and he mocks you in front of everyone, which by the way, shame on, shame on you if you're a professor and you do that. You, you are in front of people all the time. You're well-schooled. You know what you're talking about and you try to crush the faith of a 19-year-old. It's like, man, you can tell I get upset about that. But it happens and it really, it really shouldn't. These guys are, I don't know how strong I should get here what I say. It's, it's cowardly to do that. Interact with someone who can stand their ground. Interact with someone who knows. Interact with someone who knows when you're building a straw man and when you're not. Interact with someone who's on your level and don't just tear down somebody who's not. There's my words to professors. So rejoice when you're persecuted. Stand with me. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to look at the church of Smyrna and we can consider that they were being crushed and that there was going to be a beautiful aroma that would come from it. What a picture you give us for the suffering church that even though they're crushed, something beautiful is going to come out of it. And even though myrrh was crushed, the beautiful aroma came out of it. And Lord, we thank you that our sufferings are, are not for, for nothing, but they're for something. And we pray that we would respond in the proper way so that our sufferings could shine for you and bring glory to your name. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.